Good morning. If you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. While you're turning there, let me just say good morning to you and good morning to all those who are watching online. It is good to be with you for a second week while Eric is away. Last week, we considered the last two miracle passages in chapter 8, and now we're moving on to the next beginning of chapter 9. Don't let the break there confuse you. These three belong together, as we'll see. So hear now God's word from Matthew 9, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the mighty and costly sacrifice you made by sending your Son to purchase the authority to forgive sins. We ask, Lord, that uh, our hearts this morning would glorify you as we search the words here in this passage. Lord, give us hearts and minds to see and understand, Lord, and the desire to be changed into the image of your Son. Be with us, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. So, today... I want to start us off just by thinking a bit about the context. So as Matthew is telling us the story of Jesus, essentially he has, he has a goal. And his goal is to prove to us that Jesus is the divine king bringing a perfect holy kingdom. That's Matthew in a sense. So in order for Jesus to do that, he's going to have to do a few things. Of course, one of the things he has to do is to take care of all of the evil stands in the way of this kingdom. So that's where these, these, three, these three miracles come into play. They function within Matthew's story to tell us that Jesus can take care of the full trifecta of fallenness. So first we see Jesus take care of the natural elements. We see him rebuke the storm. And we see him take care of the evil spiritual realm, exercising the demons. And today we come to see how he deals with the crowning jewel of creation that is both natural and spiritual, humans, us. Because not only are we the climax of creation, <clears throat> but we are also the climax of fallenness. Every aspect of the fall stems from sinful human hearts. We might say that the sinful human heart is the centrifuge of all fallenness. And so on Jesus' mission to overcome 
all evil, this trifecta of fallenness, dealing with human sin is going to be his greatest achievement. And of course that happens by the costly, beautiful, glorious means of forgiveness. So that's the topic we're going to think about this morning as it's presented here. Jesus' authority to overcome the world's greatest problem. So if you want a way to summarize the truth we're going to find in this passage, it's this, that forgiveness is both man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Forgiveness is both man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Let's see this as we work ourselves through the narrative. We're going to look at five different assessments this morning. There are five assessments or evaluations in this text. I won't read them all to you now, but I'll let you know when we come to them. And the first one is this. First assessment we see is that Jesus is assessing the problem. Jesus assesses what the problem is. Every story, every episode in the Gospels deals with some problem, some issue. And so the question is here, what is it? There's a couple different things going on. Even though Matthew doesn't give us all the details, we know from Mark and Luke, who also tell us this story, how the drama has unfolded thus far. They tell us that this paralytic and his four friends were kept from Jesus because of the crowd that was packed into this house around him. They couldn't even look in the door. And they also tell us that the creative solution these friends came up with was to tear a hole in the roof and to drop the paralytic right down in front of Jesus. And so we know that these men were both desperate and confident enough to damage property and interrupt whatever this popular teacher was saying. So just like the leper and the centurion at the beginning of chapter 8, we know that these men were not simply wondering whether or not Jesus could heal the paralytic. They were only wondering if he would. Actually, the first thing to notice in the text is what's not in the text. Matthew doesn't give us any of these details. There's a lot of other things we don't know. How did the crowd react to the paralytic coming down through a hole in the roof? What was the homeowner screaming at the four faces peering through his new skylight? What was the paralytic thinking, suddenly finding himself at the center of attention? Will I be humiliated once again? There's lots of questions and perspectives that we're left wondering about. And Matthew holds back all of these details for a reason. It's because he wants us to focus on what Jesus is centrally focused on. He wants us to focus in on Jesus' assessment, how he describes the problem. And what we learn is that sin is man's deepest problem. Now, what else isn't in the text? Nobody's asking Jesus to do anything. No one says, heal me, Lord. Matthew's a great writer here because he's, he's interacting with us. He knows that as soon as we read and they brought to him a paralytic, we think we know what's going on. We think, great, it's another healing miracle. There's a paralytic, Jesus sees him, now he's going to heal him. I'm sure that's what the crowds thought. I bet that's why his friends and the paralytic came to Jesus in the first place. But again, we find Jesus doing the unexpected. Just like with his disciples in the boat. When Jesus responds unexpectedly, he's usually revealing what the real or more important problem is. So the unexpected response of Jesus is to look at this man suffering from paralysis and say, my sons, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
there may well have been outrage in the house. Jesus, do you not see? This man can't move. And in fact, Jesus says, I see the need. You don't. He's clearly suffering. His paralysis probably also meant that he wasn't employed, wasn't a landowner, likely a social outcast and a beggar. His list of felt needs probably goes on and on. So in some, he has, he has a disease that is both comprehensive and permanent. He is economically ruined, jobless, and socially empty. I would bet that a number of us feared any one of those realities as the worst possible thing that could ever happen to us. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not. In fact, your deepest problem has nothing to do with you being a victim of anything. Whether it's persecution or tumors. Whether it's natural disaster, even physical or emotional abuse. A disease, no matter how privileged or victimized we are, our deepest problem is the same. It's sin. The sin that we committed. Our sinful heart that keeps on sinning. That's our deepest problem. A paralysis, like any of our physical burdens, is a symptom. It stems from the sin we brought into the world. Right now, of course, we're facing this health crisis and has consumed the news in our daily lives in many ways. It seems the world's highest priority right now is getting healthy or developing some immunity. Have we stopped to check whether or not we are being caught up in this worldview, in this narrative? Have we spoken as though this virus or its effects on the world is a more mournful situation than people's sin? We may pray, and of course it's good for us to pray that God would use this virus to bring glory to his name, to bring people to himself. But think about for a moment how we are contributing to that mission. The way we are hopeful and at peace and patient and not anxious or angered in the face of the COVID crisis is what will testify to the world that we don't assess the situation the same way everybody else does. We assess the situation the way Jesus does. Sin is the world's most urgent and deepest problem. But the suffering and the pain is not, at the core, just an inconvenient, pointless evil either. Rather, the pain the world is experiencing is, as C.S. Lewis has put it, God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jesus' assessment of the paralytic has everything to do with how we think feel, and speak about the current moment. Sin is the deepest problem, which means that forgiveness is man's deepest need. That's the point Jesus makes here by prioritizing forgiveness over healing. But this raises another problem then, because nowhere in the entire Bible is God known to give someone forgiveness without repentance and faith. It just doesn't happen. There is no other way the Bible knows of to receive forgiveness. It takes a repentant heart and a belief that Jesus is the Son of God who takes away sins. And this verse does not contradict that theology. The first thing Matthew tells us that Jesus does is that he sees their faith. 
Now, he can't be talking about Jesus watching their desperate attempt to get to him. First of all, that's not even in the text, so we're not supposed to think that. More importantly, it, it must be a supernatural perception here because forgiveness is not granted on the basis of external expressions, but on the actual faith condition of the heart. Jesus here can peer into the heart and see whatever imperfect, confused, difficultly expressed, immature, yet real faith is there. And he responds to it with these words, these precious words, take heart, my son. Or we could translate it, be courageous. In the face of your paralysis, your fearsome circumstance, have a strong heart. Before we can ask why, Jesus answers. He says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus here is not informing the man of anything he should already know. He's not referring back to the last time that this paralytic, if ever, was able to go to the temple and bring a sacrifice. But Jesus in this moment is he's taking up his role as the divine end-time judge, and he is issuing a verdict of forgiveness. He's performing forgiveness in the moment, right there and then. So I want us to look ahead in the text a little bit. Why will Jesus call himself the Son of Man? It doesn't seem like the title you would pick if you were trying to prove that you were divine. Part of the reason is because the term is more vague than Son of God or the Messiah. And the more explicit his claims get, the closer his crucifixion gets, as we'll see. So it's partially designed to hold the Jews at bay, but Son of Man is a messianic term, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7. That's what Jesus has in mind here. There, the Son of Man is the one who receives this everlasting kingdom that cannot be destroyed. He is the great end-time judge. He is the king who represents his people before the Ancient of Days forever and ever. That sounds a lot like Jesus. So his subtle point, which, which could slowly prove throughout the Gospels, is that he is the mighty, cosmic, divine, end-time judge and king, and he has entered into history. So, so here, when he forgives this man, he's taking his final, ultimate, end-time, irrevocable verdict of forgiveness, and he's bringing it into the present moment for this man. Now, we don't often think about this, but it's, but it's amazing because it's, it's the same is true for us. When we are forgiven, there is no option for Satan or our accusers to take us to some court of appeals. Forgiveness that we benefit from now is the final, irreversible, eternal statement that is written in the book of life by the Son of Man. And the cosmic king has already established this eternal and spiritual element of the kingdom. Therefore, Therefore, forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus offers, is as perfect and as eternal as the new heavens and new earth will be. You can't undo it. You can't stain it. You can't mess it up. That's what Jesus offers every time we come for forgiveness. The first time, the tenth time, the millionth time. The second assessment in this episode is that the scribes are going to assess Jesus. Scribes assess Jesus. Then and there, he has just pronounced forgiveness without any formal atonement. 
being made. There was no sacrifice to pay for the sin, no priest to declare God's forgiveness. Yet little did they know, the scribes were looking at God's spotless lamb and our great high priest. And the only, reason, the only person, of course, who can pronounce forgiveness like this of his own authority is God. And so the scribes make the correct conclusion. If Jesus isn't God, then he's a blasphemer. Those are the only two options. Either Jesus is God, or he's a blasphemer. Here's what the scribes also know. They know Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 16. Which says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. So two options. Jesus is the God who just gave this man new life, or he's a lying blasphemer deserving of death. And as you know, the rest of the story of Jesus' ministry is the story of those two verdicts. And eventually, he submits himself to the verdict of a guilty blasphemer in order to be risen from the dead and proven, vindicated to be the God who grants life. And there's a third assessment. Now Jesus is turning and he assesses the scribes. They took issue with Jesus claiming authority to interact with the core issue. Now, before we join Jesus in getting on the scribe's case, we have to take a moment and assess ourselves, because we are far more capable of acting like the scribes here than we give ourselves credit for. We may not call Jesus a blasphemer, of course, but we often reject his authority to deal with the core disease. And that may come across in prayers like these. We may say, God, I don't want to admit that it hurt my spouse, but please help us fix our marriage. Or please give me an A in this course, even though I cheat. Or God, I need your help with my finances, but don't make me deal with my greed or my love for worldly things. Or God, please send me a friend or someone to marry, but please don't ask me to confront my discontent. The way that Jesus assesses, the way that he characterizes these thoughts, and the thoughts of the scribes, is as evil, the text says. Like the storms, and the demons, and the accusation of the scribes, these thoughts are not submissions to Jesus' authority. They are challenges to Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Now, it's interesting that the text says that the scribes spoke to themselves. They didn't stand up, point the finger, and cause a scene. Actually, Jesus is the one doing that here. He's the one who's calling out and bringing to attention the quiet debate going on in the corner over whether or not he's the real deal. Notice that when he surprises the scribes by reading their thoughts, he's actually offering them the first proof that he is God. Blasphemers can't read hearts or minds. See the, he sees the faith of the paralytic, and now he sees the evil thoughts of the scribes. And there are clearly two interwoven themes here, not just the forgiveness of sins, but also God's ability to know the hearts of men. These two ideas naturally occur together. The Old Testament often speaks about these things hand in hand. Think of our Old Testament reading, Psalm 51. In the first four verses, David is both pleading for God's forgiveness and acknowledging that his Sin and his heart is naked in God's sight. It just doesn't work. 
it just doesn't work to try to acknowledge Jesus' authority to forgive sins and at the same time pretend that we can keep some of our sin hidden from him. There is no sin so dark or hidden that Jesus can't see it. And of course, there is no sin so evil or overwhelming that he can't forgive. Nothing can be concealed from Christ. And that is actually incredible news. He was able to peer into the paralytic and the scribes. How familiar do you think he is with us in whom he personally and individually dwells by his Holy Spirit? He knows far more than when we lie down and when we rise. He knows when our emotions are cloudy or overwhelming. He knows how to sort them out. He knows when we feel inadequate for any task. He knows our greatest joys, our loves, our hopes, our dreams. He knows every secret, good or bad. He knows when we doubt his love, even just a little bit. He knows when we feel lonely. He knows when you want to cry. And here's what makes that good news. Jesus is ready and capable of taking on all of our vulnerabilities. Jesus is far more capable and far more ready to take on all of those things, far more than any person or journal or blog or substance or anything else. Turn your find your peace in the promises of Jesus. He also knows every sin. He knows how bitter or jealous we are towards our neighbor or how we break the sixth or seventh commandment in our hearts. He knows when you're disobeying just to get back to your parents. He has felt the blows. He has felt the blows of our every sin and he has willfully absorbed them all. The only thing more precious than that is one who also has the authority to permanently wipe that slate clean. And that's what he proves he can do next. The fourth step now in this episode is not so much an assessment, but it's Jesus putting his authority on display for an assessment. And he does this by putting himself on trial. He proposes a test. Now, look closely at the text because the operative word here is to say. Remember that. He asks the scribes, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? But what's the answer? Which is easier? I think it depends. I think, like many of the questions that Jesus asks, it's a riddling question designed to make a point. I think the hidden question is actually something like, who do you say that I am? See, if they think that Jesus is a charlatan and a liar, then it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't verify it. No way of knowing whether or not he actually accomplishes it. But if he says rise and walk and his word doesn't work, then he's embarrassed and ousted as a fraud. That's how the argument works if you think Jesus is a blaspheming liar. Jesus doesn't give them a second to answer. He doesn't need to because he knows their thoughts and he knows that they think he's a fraud. And so he goes ahead and does what in their minds is probably the harder thing, 
which proves by deduction that he can do the easier thing. So he heals the man's whole body. The paralytic rises up. His now functioning arms can take up his bed. His now functioning legs can take him home, probably running and leaping. By taking care of the physical symptom, Jesus has proven that he has the authority to take care of the root disease. On the other hand, if you think Jesus is God, then it's the other way around. Forgiveness is the harder thing. It's the greater achievement. Consider this. With a word, God can create light. He can calm a sea. He can control demons. God's words are so effective that, in a sense, God's words are his actions. And as Jesus is powering his way through all of these effects of the fall that we've seen here, we come to the climax of dealing with fallenness, dealing with the human heart, we come to a twist. It's easy for Jesus just to say, rise and get up, but he can't just say, your sins are forgiven. It's the one thing Jesus can't just say, one thing God can't simply do with a word. Because God is holy, his righteous reflex towards sin must be, it must be, to punish it with his righteous wrath. By nature, God cannot just sweep sin under the rug. Forgiveness requires some kind of satisfaction. All of the effects of the fall, God can take care of with the ease of a single word. But the root disease, sin, requires the wrath of God being poured out either on us or on Jesus at the cross. In that sense, forgiveness is definitely the harder thing. Or here's another way to put it. The authority to forgive isn't like his authority that he has over creation that just stems from his sovereignty as the creator. It isn't even like his authority over Satan and demons, which he demonstrates by overpowering Satan's greatest weapon, death. The authority to forgive sins comes from, it is purchased by being pierced, painfully pierced by every one of his people's sins, by becoming sin, and by tasting the Father's righteously hot wrath against sin. The authority that Jesus wields in order to restore the world's greatest problem, make way for the kingdom, is his because he loved us enough and was humble enough to serve us, by paying the world's greatest price. And that's why forgiveness, so to speak, is God's highest achievement. Nothing has ever cost him more. The fifth and final step in this episode is that now we see the crowd's assessment of Jesus, his authority. Here again, like we saw the disciples and the Gadarenes last week, there's a fear of Jesus, but it's not the right kind of fear. Yes, this time they're even glorifying him. But the strange thing they had just witnessed, but Matthew gives away their misunderstanding with the last words in the passage. They glorified God because he gave such authority to men. 
crowd is interested in Jesus like they would be interested in a human sorcerer who claimed to be doing God's work. They don't understand his divine identity. Now there's a sixth, a sixth assessment that needs to happen. We can imagine the story continuing off the page, if you will, right into these pews. We need to assess and see the situation better than the scribes and better than the crowds. We are to fear and glorify Jesus, not merely as a man, but as the divine second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh, who took on all of our sins, died for our sins, and now has the authority to forgive our sins. But if we acknowledge Jesus' authority to forgive sins, it necessitates a response. His authority is not a spectacle we can just marvel at. But if we believe in it, it, it puts to us an existential question that we have to answer every day. Will you submit to his authority or will you challenge it? Those are the only two options when it comes to authority. You submit to it or you challenge it. So here are five ways. Five ways to challenge Jesus' authority that we are all guilty of at one point or another. Five ways to challenge or mock Jesus' authority. Here's the first. Keep pretending that Jesus can't see that one sin that you're just not willing to give up yet. Or harbor unrepentant sin. Prefer your sin. Second way, convince yourself that sins like lying or gossiping are so insignificant that they don't really need forgiveness. Third way to challenge Jesus' authority to forgive, don't honor and reflect God's forgiveness by forgiving others, like the Lord's Prayer teaches us. Fourth way to mock his authority, only ask Jesus to forgive your sins when you come to church. Fifth way, to challenge Jesus' authority, don't confess and repent continually so that you hinder your own walk with the Lord and your sanctification. Those are ways to challenge Jesus' authority. Those are ways to participate in, to look like the unholy order that Jesus has come to save us from. In other words, so long as we challenge the authority of Jesus to forgive sins, we refuse to taste the benefits of Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Jesus and his sacrifice will not be sweet to us. His authority will not be something we cherish or celebrate or appreciate so long as we don't want it, so long as we prefer unrepentant sin. Here's what the Westminster Confession says about it. Although believers can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Submission looks like a repentant life that cherishes the costly sacrifice Jesus made for our sake. Forgiveness is cherished by the submissive heart. Submission loves forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is a treasure because it is our deepest need and the answer to our deepest problem. People of God, I can't promise, the Bible doesn't promise that if you pray for physical healing, you'll get it immediately. You will one day, Jesus promises that, but not until he comes to restore his physical kingdom on earth permanently. But, but he has promised that if you come to him and seek forgiveness, you will never, ever, if you come in faith, go away empty-handed. It won't happen. Jesus will answer your deepest need. The one who knows you best stands ready to offer complete and total forgiveness, the complete removal of your guilt based on his own precious, purchased authority. Let's pray. God, you are so gracious, so good to do the unnecessary thing by seeking us out, sending your son, sacrificing your son, so that we might be with you forever. We ask, Lord, that you would put it on our hearts to restore our fellowship with you always, to be people who hate sin, who seek its removal in our lives, seek its removal in our relationship between us and you by the means of the cross and of Jesus' blood. We ask, Lord, that you would give us confidence in Jesus' authority that he purchased. We ask, Lord, also that you would put it on our hearts to share this news with others, to help others understand that the reason we don't think this is the end of everything good. It's because we don't think a virus is the world's biggest problem. Help us, Lord, to communicate your great and good news that you have the answer to the world's deepest problem. And may that form us and change us. We ask these things in your son's precious name.